You're listening to Radio Luke's Lucid. I'm your host, Steve Matthews. Thanks for joining me for episode 71. The title of today's episode is Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell, Were They Spying for Israel? Well, um, I guess what was, what was it going on? What was going on for me here this week? I guess before we jump into our main topic here, just uh, wanted to uh, give you a review of my last week here since we've talked. And, you know, I, I had one noteworthy thing happen to me this past week is uh, I got sick for the first time in almost two years. You know, this whole uh, work from home thing, we in my last job, we started that in, uh, I guess that was in uh, in March of uh, March of 2020. And oddly enough, you know, in the in the year and a half that I worked from home, I never once got sick, never once even got so much as the sniffles. But you know, after uh, being back to work in the office for a mere six or seven weeks, uh, what did I didn't do, I came down with a cold. And uh, anyway, uh, I finally got over that. I was uh, 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 z- vigorously taking my zinc tablets. I don't know if that's something that anybody else does out there, but I know for my uh, for my part, I found that uh, taking those zinc tablets is is very helpful. I, I remember years ago, I heard Rush Limbaugh. He was uh, was advertising those, and uh, I tried them out, and I I don't know. I found them pretty effective, so I swear by those. So I don't know if uh, anybody listening out there, if you've never tried zinc tablets for cold treatment, uh, it actually seems like it. At least for me, it, it seems like it works pretty well, and it's cheap. I mean, it's it's not like it's super expensive. Uh, medicine to get you can buy it over the counter i don't know i paid like seven bucks a a bottle for these things and uh, they do seem to do a pretty good job of uh, you know the way they advertise i mean it supposedly uh, limits the severity of the cold and the length and i have found that at least in my case in my opinion to be true so that may be something you want to try if you haven't tried that before also something this week we had our first snowfall of the year it got down i think it was uh I guess it was Wednesday night. It it uh, it snowed, and it wasn't much of a snow. I guess as, as snowfalls go, I mean it was really just kind of a dusting, sort of a, a covering uh, out there uh, when I got up in the morning. But it was our first snow, nonetheless. Now uh, it's kind of interesting talking about that because I had a friend of mine who used to insist that we don't have winter in Cincinnati, and of course she was from North Dakota. So, you know, I guess probably by comparison, she's probably right. We don't have winter in Cincinnati compared to North Dakota. On the other hand, I have a friend of mine who is from Australia, a good brother in Christ there. And he, I, I think he's convinced that I live somewhere in the Arctic Circle, if if not actually in it, somewhere pretty close to it. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell him about our temperatures in, in January, and he always tells me he'd die if he had that and uh, I don't know, I guess maybe it's kind of what you're used to. I, I, I suppose the truth is somewhere in between. We we do have winter, but it's it's not the Arctic Circle. Uh, maybe North Dakota's the Arctic Circle. I don't know. I, I think that could be. But I, I don't think that it's Cincinnati winters are quite up to to that, uh, uh, quite quite measure up to, uh, to North Dakota or the Arctic Circle. So anyway, um, yeah, it's actually getting pretty close to winter. I guess what's today the, this is the 11th of my, doing this on uh, December the 11th. So uh, 10 days from now, I guess it officially becomes winter on the, on, on December 21st. Nice thing about December 21st, I always kind of look forward to that because that's the day, that's the shortest day of the year. That's when we have the least sunshine. And I mean, right now, you know, this time of year, it, it gets to the point where the sunset occurs about 515 here locally. Which is pretty early. So, I mean, it's, it's, the sun's going down right about the time I'm getting out of work. And, you know, by the time I get home, it's, uh, it's already dark. 
And I think maybe as much as anything, that's what I dislike about the winter is just the fact that it gets dark so early. Yeah, that's one of the things I, I guess alternately I, I love about the summer. I love the fact that, you know, it'll, it'll be light so late. So anyway, um, beginning, uh, with uh, January, with uh, December 21st, I guess we'll start slowly climbing our way back to uh, having some, some decent daylight. Um, so the, the end is near, at least with, with regard to the days getting shorter. So at least that's, that's something I try to keep that in mind in all those, those cold February, January and February days when it doesn't seem like it's ever going to get, uh, get above freezing. So anyway, that's me. Uh, well, the, the topic I wanted to talk about here tonight is a uh, is is kind of a topic that's kind of ripped out of the the headlines going on uh, today. You, you may have noticed, I guess, over the past, I guess it's going on. Is it two weeks now? Um, the the trial of uh, Ghislaine Maxwell is underway now. You know, depending on how much you watch the news, you may be saying, "Well, so who on earth is Ghislaine Maxwell, and why should I care about that?" Well, Ghislaine Maxwell was, I, I guess, you would call her. She was sort of the the madam. Uh, of sorts for uh, Jeffrey Epstein. And Jeffrey Epstein, as you may recall, he was a convicted uh, pedophile, um, did a lot of uh, very perverse and horrible things. And he supposedly died in prison last year in, in July, or I guess it was August of 2020, uh, under some very mysterious circumstances. You know, he was, quote, suicided. Um, <laughs> you know, he supposedly committed suicide, but it, there's, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that eh, he probably had a little bit of help. But uh, without delving too far into that, of course, he was going to be tried, but but he uh, he conveniently had a, a tragic accident before he was able to be brought to justice. But uh, his, uh, his second-in-command, his lieutenant, uh, this Ghislaine Maxwell, is on trial right now. She was captured, I guess, about a year ago or so. And, and so that, that trial is getting underway. And it's been very hush hush. I mean, this is a, a huge trial. This is really, um, has a, there's a lot going on here. And yet it's, it's received relatively little, um, play in the press. And I, I don't think that that's an accident. I think that's actually quite intentional. You know, I think the, uh, the press is covering up a lot. But one of the things when, when you, you know, the, the, the press that it has got, and you see this when you look at any of the, uh, you know, the mainstream news channels, well, they're, they're talk about her involvement in procuring underage girls for Jeffrey Epstein and for his wealthy, well-heeled, powerful clientele to abuse. And and that's pretty much it. You get some of the, you know these these lurid details about Ghislaine Maxwell and you know the work that she did for Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, Jeffrey Epstein, of course, he's the guy that, among other things, he had this private island in the Caribbean, and they called it Pedo Island. And he had a I guess a private jet that would fly down there, and they used to call it the Lolita Express. And a lot of uh, said very wealthy and powerful people have been connected to Jeffrey Epstein and. and and their names actually appear on the log, the passenger log of his plane. Um, one of those was uh, was Bill Clinton. And, you know, there are a lot of other very powerful people as well. And I'm not going to dive into all of that right now because that's really not the principal uh, focus of, of this podcast. But when you do see anything about the Ghislaine Maxwell trial, I mean, it's always that kind of lurid stuff. You know, you find out, you know, that, that Jeffrey Epstein was, was a very bad, very perverted man, which he was. I mean, he was a very disgusting individual. And 
without going and I say you you can find all that stuff all you want you know it's all that kind of national enquire sort of tabloid kind of news out there and it's true I mean the 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 guy was a horrible individual and she's a horrible individual but with that said there's another angle to this story that has received at least in the mainstream press as far as I can tell zero press coverage you know, you get all the lurid details and everybody goes, oh, you know, this is, oh, you know, this kind of stuff is kind of like a, like a moth being attracted to a flame. You know, people just, just go in for all of the, the lurid kinds of details, but they don't uh, really ever get beyond that level. So what is it I'm talking about here? Well, just to give you an example, I kind of wanted to pull from an experience that I had. A number of years ago, I heard a minister one time give a, a Reformation Day sermon. And the sermon itself was in many ways quite good, but there was one glaring serious omission to that sermon. And that is he somehow managed to preach through a, a fairly extensive Reformation Day sermon talking about Martin Luther and, and, you know, Martin Luther's nailing of the 95 Thesis to the Wittenberg church door and all of this stuff. Somehow he managed to go through this entire, um, history of Martin Luther and the, the early Reformation. And he never once mentioned the Roman Catholic church state. You know, the very institution that, that Martin Luther was, uh, was challenging. And, and, you know, it, it's been a number of years, and sometimes I've wondered to myself, well, maybe my memory is just incorrect. I don't think that's the case. Um, you know, and if, if you had told me before hearing a sermon that somebody could actually preach a Reformation Day sermon in, in a fairly, you know, probably a 45-minute sermon or so, and somehow do it and never mention the Roman Catholic Church, I, I would have said, well, that's not possible. Um, but this particular minister was able to do it, and um, you know, as a as a Christian, I I don't that I don't admire that because it's it's kind of you're, you're kind of it was an attempt, in my opinion, to dodge the issue of what it exactly was that Martin Luther was was fighting against. I think he probably didn't want to offend uh, maybe Roman Catholics uh, because he was uh, to some extent this particular individual was involved with. A lot of ecumenical kinds of activities, and I think he wanted to kind of downplay the the issues between Protestants and, and Roman Catholics. And so he didn't want to mention the Roman Catholic Church by name. And it was it was an amazing thing to do. I, I don't I, I I don't think that I could do that, and I wouldn't want to do that because I think that trying to cover up what Martin Luther was was fighting against, I, I think is is actually fundamentally dishonest. Well. The reason I bring that up is because the press coverage of Ghislaine Maxwell in, in her trial, and even a lot of the comments you see out there about Jeffrey Epstein, various stories and things, really do the same kinds of kind of thing. Um, what they do is they they focus on one part of the story, and that's not to say that it's wrong, but they miss um, they they omit intentionally a very important detail, and that detail is that there is a massive amount of evidence that Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell were both uh, spying for Israel. Uh, they were both Mossad agents. And Mossad is the, it's the equivalent of the CIA. It's the secret service of uh, uh, the intelligence agency, the main intelligence agency of the state of Israel. And you know, they were both, uh, both Mossad agents. Apparently, um, from, from what I can tell here. And there's a story 
Uh, this is one something I found. It's on a website called the Council for the National Interest. It's written by a gentleman by the name of uh, Philip Giraldi, who I think is probably one of the few writers out there on the subject of Israel who is, has both uh, the the knowledge uh, to be able to write uh, about Israel and also the courage to be able to write critically about Israel. And that's not something. That's not a, a combination that that you often see. And what I wanted to do here is I'd like to read a little bit of an excerpt uh, out of this. Again, this is uh, from uh, Philip Giraldi's uh, piece uh, dated November 30th, 2021. It's called Ghislaine Maxwell is Finally on Trial. And here's an excerpt out of here. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein procurer Ghislaine Maxwell is finally in court going through the juror selection process and opening arguments after a 17-month stay at the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn. Given Epstein's somewhat suspicious departure from this earth and what may have been a murder rather than a suicide, Maxwell has been jailed under a somewhat more intrusive regime. Uh, with her constant, with constant surveillance and only limited ability to do anything but sit on her concrete bunk and contemplate her future. She has complained frequently about her isolation, abuse by jailers, and the terrible food. She was undoubtedly correct about the food. Her offer of as much as $28 million in bail, money in return for her freedom while awaiting trial was turned down by the judge who observed that Maxwell had more than 15 separate bank or investment accounts as well as multiple passports. She suggested that Ghislaine might have much more money and other assets squirreled away outside the United States, making her a flight risk, presumably to flee to Israel, which has no extradition agreement with the U.S. There is a significant backstory to consider when examining the Ghislaine-Maxwell-Jeffrey Epstein saga. The suspicion that Epstein was working for Israel's external intelligence agency Mossad or for its military intelligence counterpart is based on considerable evidence and that he was being protected has also seemingly been confirmed through both Israeli and American sources. Indeed, there already exists some evidence that Epstein was granted unusual leniency when he was convicted in Florida of sex crimes in 2008 involving 19 underage girls and received a sentence that was little more than a slap on the wrist. After the fact, the U.S. attorney for Miami, Ale uh, Miami, Alexander Acosta, who was involved in the case, reported that the arrest and sentencing were above his pay grade, that he had been told that Epstein, quote, belonged to intelligence, end quote, and to leave it alone. A common uh, comment that apparently was never pursued, uh, was never uh, pursued by investigators. Also, a recent book, Epstein, Deadman, Tale, No Tales, written by Ari Ben Menashe. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name correct. It's M-E-N-A-S-H-E. -E. I'm, I'm going to say Menashe. Uh, the former Israeli intelligence officer who actually claims to have run the Epstein operation described, among other things, how Epstein was blackmailing prominent politicians on behalf of Israeli intelligence. Epstein had been working directly for the Israeli government since the 1980s, and his operation, which was funded by Israel and also by prominent American Jews, was a classic honey trap, which used underage girls as bait to attract well-known politicians from around the world, a list that included Prince Andrew and Bill Clinton. Clinton reportedly flew at least 26 times on Epstein's private 727, the Lolita Express, to a mansion estate in Florida, as well as to a private island owned by Epstein in the Caribbean. The island was referred to by locals as the pedophile island. The politicians would be photographed and video recorded when they were in bed with the girls. Afterwards, they would be approached and asked to do favors for Israel. 
Ghislaine Maxwell is, in fact, the daughter of top Israeli spy Robert Maxwell, who received a state funeral in Israel after his mysterious death in 1991, which was attended by the prime minister as well as by all the former and serving heads of the country's intelligence services. Ghislaine is presumed to have been an active participant in the Epstein operation, acting as procurer of young girls, and on at least one occasion has hinted that she knows where the sex films made by Epstein are hidden. She also has claimed that the tapes feature both Bill Clinton and Donald Trump. Okay, so this actually gives you uh, a the, the, these few paragraphs here that I just read. This gives you the proper context that you need to be able to understand what's going on with Ghislaine Maxwell. You know, so Jeffrey Epstein wasn't just a perverted guy doing perverted things. I mean, he was that, but it was more than that. He was running, you know, in in the words of this particular article by Philip Giraldi, he was running what was called a uh, a, a honey trap or a honey was it a honey trap or a honey pot. Let me get that here. Uh, let's see here. A honey trap. Yeah, that's that's the right word. It was a classic honey trap. So I mean what 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 was going on here is is Ghislaine Maxwell was recruiting these young girls, I guess, turning them over to, to Jeffrey Epstein, and he was was flying rich and powerful politicians, business leaders, and this type of thing down his his island. And these these men were were having having sex with these underage girls, and when they were and and, and uh, Epstein was filming them doing this, he was taking photographs of them, he was taking a video of them, and then they guess they would be presented with this. He'd say, "Oh, well, Mr. President, that's a nice career you have there. It'd be a shame if something happened to it." Yeah, you know, while they're showing him the pictures and in, in the video of him engaging in these these perverted and sinful acts. Yeah, you know, and then they'd say, "Oh, well, you know, if, if you, you know you want to preserve your career, but this is a little favor you can do for Israel, and 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 uh, we'll just you know we'll we'll just make sure that this stays on the down low and goes away." And that that's what was going on, you know. So this whole thing was a pedophile ring with a purpose, uh, and certainly one of the main purposes was to uh, to blackmail American politicians on behalf of Israel. Now, this is what was going on. And so, you know, this is the important thing that, uh, that you need to understand about the whole Jeffrey, Jeffrey Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell episode. But it's being almost completely shut down by the mainstream media. I talked to someone the other day and someone who's actually very knowledgeable, um, certainly a lot more knowledgeable than most people about this. And when I presented this information, uh, he told me that, that he had never heard that before. And this is somebody who's actually pretty well informed. And so I, I suspect that probably this is the first time a lot of people have come and, and heard this type of thing. But this is what's going on. This is, this is what Epstein was up to. This is what Ghislaine Maxwell was up to. Ghislaine Maxwell is the daughter of a very prominent, as the article noted, a very prominent Israeli spy, a very prominent Mossad spy. So she has ties uh, as well um, to, uh, to Israeli intelligence. Now, it may come as a surprise to a lot of people, and in particularly American Christians, that uh, that Israel spies on the United States. But the truth of the matter is, Israel is notorious for spying on the United States. In fact, there are uh, a lot of American intelligence reports out there that say that um, that Israel, more than any other uh, supposed ally of the United States, spies on the United States. 
And there are many, many, many examples of this kind of thing going on. I, I'm just going to cite a few here uh, as an example. You have Jonathan Pollard, who has been described by many people as the most damaging spy in, in American history. Uh, he took substantial uh, closely guarded, according to this, this is Wikipedia says he sold numerous closely guarded state secrets, including the National Security Agency's 10 volume manual on how the U.S. gathers a signal intelligence and disclosed the names of thousands of people who had cooperated with U.S. intelligence agencies. Um, I believe some of these things, uh, were sold by, uh, by Israel, uh, to China. Yeah, I'd encourage you to do your own research on this, but yes, these, these sorts of things did go on. And, you know, that, that was just, that was one guy. You know, there's a, another example here, the, uh, the dancing Israelis of 9-11. You know, I, I don't know if you recall this, but there were uh, people, I mean, and these guys were littered. There's a group of about four or five guys that were over in New Jersey, and they were spotted by someone who was, uh, someone who lived over there. And they were, were looking across the, I guess, what's that, the, the Hudson River, looking across in the lower Manhattan where the, the Twin Towers had been hit. And they were over there high, dancing around and high-fiving it and celebrating. I mean, literally giving one another high fives. And they uh, they all piled in the van and took off. And, of course, whoever was the resident, I guess, called the, the New Jersey State Troopers. And these guys were caught. And two of them, it turned out, had Mossad connections. And they claimed that they were there to document the event. So, I mean, there's, there's something going on there um, with, uh, you know, with the Mossad in, in 9-11. You know, what that is, I don't know, and I'm, I'm not going to dive in and, and try to speculate too much right now. But that did go on. And, you know, here's a, another example of Israeli spying on the United States. Here, This is from just a couple years ago. It's from September 2019. This article uh, that I'm showing here is from Politico. It's got a headline, Israel accused of planting mysterious spy devices near the White House. The likely Israeli spy efforts were uncovered during the Trump presidency, several former top U.S. officials said. And if you read just the first couple paragraphs here, it says the U.S. government concluded within the past two years that Israel is most likely behind the placement of cell phone surveillance devices that were found near the White House and other sensitive locations around Washington, according to three former senior U.S. officials with knowledge of the matter. But unlike most other occasions when flagrant incidents of foreign spying have been discovered on American soil, the Trump administration did not rebuke the Israeli government, and there were no consequences for Israel's behavior, one of the former officials said. The miniature surveillance devices, colloquially known as stingrays, mimic regular cell phone towers to fool cell phones into giving them their locations and identify information, formerly called International Mobile Subscriber Identity Catchers, or IMSI catchers, they also can capture the contents of calls and data use. The devices were likely intended to spy on President Donald Trump, one of the former officials said, as well as his top aides and closest associates, though it's not clear whether the Israeli efforts were successful. So, you know, there's, there's another example. And I guess, and, and again, this is from Politico. Okay, Politico is a very mainstream DC, I believe they're DC based, uh, based paper. So, I mean, you know, again, we're not talking here about, you know, wild conspiracy theories or things of this sort. I mean, this is well documented stuff. And, uh, in fact, if you want to get even more recent, this is an article here, uh, from the Washington Post. This is from November 3rd, 2021. So just a little bit over a month ago, I guess, what about five weeks ago or so? Here's a headline. Biden administration blacklist NSO group over Pegasus spyware. 
Commerce Department says action is among efforts to put human rights at the center of U.S. foreign policy. And if you read through here, it's, uh, I'm just read the first few paragraphs. Again, the United States on Wednesday added the Israeli spyware company NSO Group to its entity list, a federal blacklist prohibiting the company from receiving American technologies, after determining that its phone hacking tools have been used by foreign governments to maliciously target government officials, activists, journalists, academics, and embassy workers around the world. The move is a significant sanction against the company spotlighted in July in an investigation by the Global Pegasus Project Consortium, which includes the Washington Post and 16 other news organizations worldwide. The consortium published dozens of articles detailing how NSO customers had misused its powerful spyware Pegasus. Uh, the move could also raise tensions between the United States and Israel, where NSO is a prized techno uh, technological powerhouse. Exports of NSO software are regulated by Israel's defense. Ministry of Defense was much approved them, as it would any weapons sale. The NSO group could not have operated without Israeli government knowledge and toleration, if not encouragement, said David Kay, a former United Nations special re uh, rapporteur, who has called for global restrictions on sales of surveillance technology. So part of this cannot be seen merely as the U.S. government making a statement about this particular company. It's also a statement about the Israeli government, its export controls, and engagement in transnational, transnational repression. You know, again, this is only from five weeks ago. And, and of course, you really, you know, all of this raises the question, okay, what else is Israel doing in terms of spying on the United States that isn't being reported? You know, I, I think it would be a bit absurd uh, to think that that they're not uh, continuing uh, these efforts in in many other areas. I mean, in fact, I, th I think it would be downright foolish to assume uh, to assume otherwise. So, I mean, you know, here, and, and as I said, these, these are just a few examples. I'm sure that if you went and you dug through, uh, you know, did some internet searches, you could probably find a lot more cases. But I think that's enough to establish that this is something that goes on on a regular basis uh, with Israel spying on the United States, and there not being any anything really much in the way of consequences uh, for Israel. This also has, you know, there are a number of different angles to this, and I, one of the things I wanted to mention in in discussing uh, Israel and you know, Israeli-American relations here tonight is is the role of dispensational theo dispensationalist theology. Now, dispensational theology teaches American Christians that they have a moral responsibility to stand for Israel. That we have an that Christians have an obligation to stand for Israel. Now, you know, I consider that to be a fantasy, but it's a fantasy that's become deeply ingrained in American evangelicalism to the point where it's almost become an article of the faith. I mean, it, it's almost something you know, right up there with the Trinity or justification by faith alone, or. Uh, sola scriptura or something like this. Uh, you know, you throw all those things in and right behind them and, and actually maybe even ahead of them <laughs> is the doctrine that, uh, that, uh, Americans have an obligation to give Israel whatever the government of Israel demands. And if you ever disagree with the prime minister of Israel, I mean, it's almost as if you're, uh, you're blaspheming God. And, um, there is no such obligation on the part of the American people. There's no such obligation. On, on American Christians to blindly support Israel uh, and to never criticize them. Uh, there are some things that, uh, that Israel does that very much are deserving of criticism. I wanted to talk about a few things here um, relative to that. Uh, this is from an article. This is actually a, a Trinity View that was published back in, I believe, 2006. 
by the Trinity Foundation. It's called uh, Who Really Owns the Holy Land? And it was written by uh, Robert L. Raymond, who is a, a very well-known um, Reformed theologian. And actually someone I'm pleased to say I, I had as a professor uh, for one semester in my time at, at Knox Seminary. In fact, it was right around the time this uh, this particular article was written. And uh, Dr. Raymond was, uh, was a, a wonderful and fine, uh, fine, wonderful uh, Christian gentleman and, uh, and a teacher and someone that I admired and, and very much do admire um, to this day. And, uh, and he wrote this piece um, titled, Who Really Owns the Holy Land? I just wanted to quote um, the first few paragraphs from this as well, and I think you'll kind of get a flavor of where he was coming from. This is what uh, Robert Raymond said. A gigantic effort is underway today to convince the evangelical citizenry of the United States of America that the political state of Israel rightfully owns in perpetuity the so-called Holy Land at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea by virtue of God's bequeathing it to Abraham and his descendants in the Old Testament. This effort is being made not so much today by a secular leadership of the state of Israel as by self-acclaimed Christian scholars and televangelists who claim to speak for over 70 million evangelical Christians. These men, including Assemblies of God preacher and televangelist Don Hagee, founder and pastor of the Cornerstone Church in San Antonio, Texas, uh, Kenneth Copeland, televangelist, Paul and Matt Crouch of the Trinity Broadcasting Network, Jack Hayford, founder and pastor of the Church of the Way in Van Nuys, California, and president of the Foursquare Gospel Church, Benny Hinn, pastor of the yet-to-be-built World Healing Center in Dallas, Texas, Rod Parsley, pastor of the World Harvest Church in Columbus, Ohio, Pat Robertson, founder and chief executive officer of the Christian Broadcasting Network and Bible teacher on the 700 Club, and Jerry Falwell, founder and pastor of the Thomas Road Baptist Church and founder of Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia, all are purveyors of that system of hermeneutics known as dispensationalism. Apparently convinced by this propaganda effort, President Clinton, after citing the words of his desperately ill Baptist pastor to him, quote, if you abandon Israel, God will never forgive you, end quote, declared before the Israeli Knesset in Jerusalem on October 27, 1994, quote, it is God's will that Israel, the biblical home of the people of Israel, continue forever and ever, end quote. A statement that enters deeply into biblical hermeneutics concerning the nature of the church and the kingdom of God, not to mention biblical eschatology, known as forever and ever. President Clinton concluded his speech by saying, Your journey is our journey, and America will stand with you now and always. A statement that illustrates this nation's deep involvement in both the Middle East, politics in general, and its specific political commitment to Israel— in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in particular, in a way that cannot but affect the course of world politics for the foreseeable future. And Raymond continues, In my opinion, President Clinton's statement is bad politics based on equally bad theology. I say this because, as I shall argue in this paper, all of God's land promises to Israel in the Old Testament are to be viewed in terms of shadow, type, and prophecy, in contrast to the reality, substance, and fulfillment of which the New Testament speaks. Consequently, contrary to John Hagee, who insists that Israel has a biblical mandate to the land, has a Bible mandate to the land, a divine covenant of the land of Israel forever, and Christians have a Bible mandate to be supportive of Israel. Uh, so, I mean, that's uh, that, that's the end of the comment that I had there from uh, from uh, Robert Raymond. And since we're talking about that, uh, let me see. You know, we we talked. You know, there was a quote in there by from Bill Clinton. Talking about um, you know the fact that you know that uh, America has this uh, this obligation 
uh, to defend Israel. It didn't stop with Bill Clinton. Uh, here's an article. This is another article by Philip Giraldi called Trump Confirms U.S. is Israel's Protector. And uh, this is a story just from September 2020, so just a little bit over a year ago. And this is what uh, Trump said. He says, the fact is we don't have to be in the Middle East other than that we want to protect Israel. We've been very good to Israel. Other than that, we don't have to be in the Middle East. So, I mean, if what uh, what Donald Trump said was true, uh, maybe about 15 months back or so, the only reason that we have troops in the Middle East, the only reason that we are up to our neck in Middle East politics is because of Israel. You know, it's not because of anything, any uh, any pressing U.S. interest. It's principle. It's because of Israel, and we have that uh, from the from the very lips of Donald Trump, um, who really did a great deal to uh, to give away the the American store to Israel uh, during his uh, his four years in office. Uh, I think that was one of the uh, the real problems with the Trump administration is he was was way too simpatico uh, with Israel. So I mean, it's it's not just uh, um, you know Democrat Bill Clinton who was into uh, into tight with Israel. So was Donald Trump. You know, were Bill Clinton's or Donald Trump's politics affected by the work of Jeffrey Epstein? I don't know. You know, I, I can't prove that here. But when you you put together the the comments, um, some of the, the allegations that Ghislaine Maxwell has said that she has tape on on Bill Clinton and Donald Trump, and then you see the statements made by Bill Clinton and Donald Trump about Israel, uh, you know, as an American, that raises serious questions in my mind. Have these men been blackmailed by uh, by Israel? It certainly is possible. You know, and I think that you know, anytime you see things done by the U.S. government, you have to wonder, you know, whether it's bills passed in Congress or what have you, you know, have these people been blackmailed? I mean, that's a very serious question. Now, in contrast to all of that, and I guess really in, in, uh, along the same lines of, uh, of some of the things that Robert Raymond wrote, are some statements that John Robbins made. Uh, one of the, my favorite essays that John Robbins ever did, it was called The Religious Wars of the 21st Century. And I like to read a little bit out of, uh, out of the religious wars of the 21st century. So he talks here, he says, the result of two centuries of irrationalism is that the beginning of the 20, is that at the beginning of the 21st century, we are faced not with a hopeful prospect, but with an even more dismal prospect than our great grandfathers faced a hundred years ago. The last hundred years has seen the resurgence of medieval Romanism and the emergence of Romanist zealot organizations such as, such as Opus Dei. Medieval Romanism is not just confined to the Roman Catholic Church state and its thousands of educational institutions, but has gained many adherents among nominal Protestants as well. The prolific authors Norman Geisler and R.C. Sproul and many lesser-known Protestant theologians and philosophers as well are disciples of the official philosopher of the Roman Church state, Thomas Aquinas. Their influence has misled most Protestants away from a biblical and reformed view of philosophy and apologetics and into a compromise with Rome. And I can say that that's, uh, that's most definitely the case. You know, how many, when was the last time, you know, if you're a Reformed Christian, when was the last time you ever heard a sermon warning you about the dangers of the Roman church state, of the Antichrist Roman church state? You probably have never heard that. You know, and one of the reasons is because so many leading Protestant thinkers have been seriously compromised by their association in one way or the other 
with thinkers of, uh, of the Roman church state, including the official philosopher of the Roman Catholic church state, Thomas Aquinas. And certainly, uh, R.C. Sproul was a, was a very prominent American Presbyterian uh, minister and theologian. And he's not the only one to fall under the spell of Rome either, um, not by a long shot. In fact, I had a recent discussion with some people um, where the the question was asked: You know, is are, are Roman Catholics Christians? And um, the others in the the group I was speaking with they um, they 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 said yes, they are. And I, I took the opposite position: No, uh, no, they're not. And you know, I, I'm not going to to go down that route. But I mean, I think it's very common for. Um, American evangelicals to consider Roman Catholics are brothers in Christ, even though the Roman Catholic Church explicitly teaches against the gospel of justification by belief alone, and even though the Roman Catholic Church has explicitly condemned, anathematized anyone uh, who does believe that. So not only do they not teach the gospel and teach a false gospel in its place, but they explicitly, pointedly, clearly, in no uncertain terms, condemned the one doctrine that can actually save sinners, and that is the doctrine of justification by belief alone in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, and that they've condemned. And then we're supposed to think that they're Christians, uh, or that the Roman Catholic Church is a Christian organization. It is not a Christian organization. But let's not get too far afield on that right now. Um, let's, I'm going to continue reading John Robbins here. So let's see. Oh, he, he, so that's that what he had to say about uh, medieval Roman Catholicism. But he goes on and talks about uh, Islam. He says, quote, medieval Islam is now usually called fundamentalist Islam. And medieval Judaism, with the establishment of the modern state of Israel in 1948, are on the rise as well. All three religions, Romanism, Islam, and Judaism, are false, militant, and violent. Get that false, militant, and violent. Devout members of each group hate, oppose, and plot against members of the other two. But today, the date is 2006, and not 10, uh, 10, 1006. And the true believers of each of these medieval religions have access to nuclear, biological, chemical, and electromagnetic weapons. Barring dramatic divine intervention, such as a new reformation or the second coming of Christ, the wars of the 21st century will be religious wars. They will be worse than the secular wars of the 20th century. The three principal protagonists will be the three medieval religions that have warred with each other for centuries. Already the battles have begun. It is important to realize that the Christian has no dog in this fight. Neither Romanism, nor Judaism, nor Islam is Christianity. Yet many who profess to be Christians support either Judaism or Romanism. The so-called Christian right in the United States, influenced by Romanism, Dispensationalism, and Reconstructionism, has been a supporter of Israel, Judaism, and Rome for decades. The principal figures in the American conservative movement have been Romanist, though their source of funds has largely been Protestant. The principal figures of the so-called neoconservatives, neocons, are Jews. The U.S. government, and this is where this is the really the uh, the, the centerpiece of, of what John Robbins is saying here about Israel. He says the U.S. government, in violation of the U.S. Constitution, has taken tens, if not hundreds, of billions of dollars from American taxpayers and given them to the government of Israel over the past fifty years. And of course, this was written in two thousand six. So I mean, yeah, that was what fifteen years ago. Well, we've given a lot more to Israel since that time. So I, I don't know what the actual total is, but it's a big total. Even if you just look at the official totals uh, that get reported in the news, and my guess is probably the actual amount that is given is, is probably a lot more than what's uh, usually officially acknowledged. I mean, that, that's usually the way those things work. 
So, you know, John Robbins makes the point that all of the, the money in that that we give to Israel is against the U.S. Constitution. Of course, he's right. There's no provision in the U.S. Constitution for the federal government to take money from the American people and give them to any foreign government, whether it's Israel or any other government. But yet we do that. Um, one of the, you know, and he could have uh, talked some in here about this as well, uh, as he's talked about in, in certain other Trinity reviews, but John Robbins has talked about the original foreign policy of the United States was strategic independence. You don't get involved in foreign wars, and yet the United States is involved up to its neck in fighting wars for Israel. I mean, according to Donald Trump, that's the only reason we're in the Middle East at all, is to fight for Israel. Yeah, and you know, I mean, if if what Donald Trump says is right, and I, I think he probably is, you know, that is an enormous betrayal of the American people. There's nothing in the Middle East that even a single American soldier should be dying for, and yet we're constantly at a threat of of being embroiled in a a major uh, regional war and a war that could possibly spill out even beyond that, maybe even a world war. Uh, that's a powder keg over there. We don't need to be there, but yet we we can't, it seems like we can't not be involved. So I guess the conclusion of the whole thing here today, were Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell spying for Israel? Uh, the answer is probably so. Very probably so. And it's my view that Americans generally, and American Christians in particular, need to get over their blind support of Israel. There is no biblical imperative for Americans to support Israel. And some very sound biblical reasons uh, not to be involved with that. For instance, we're told, thou shalt not steal. But yet the U.S. government steals tens of billions of dollars every year from the American people and sends them to Israel. That's theft. That's not only bad policy, uh, it's sin. But yet there are many American Christians, you know, particularly of the, the John Hagee type, uh, who, you know, as far as they're concerned, well, not, the problem isn't, isn't that we're... Now, giving too much money to Israel is we're not giving enough money to Israel. Um, you know, I, I think for, for John Hagee and company, I think if they turned the entire country over to Israel and uh, gave them every last dime that's owned by the American people, I, that would probably be considered a good start, would be my guess. Now, and maybe I'm being a little bit sarcastic there, but it's, you know, there, there seems to be nothing that the John Hagee types of the world will not do for Israel. And it's hard to it, it's hard sometimes not to see even some of the the statements that are made by by some American Christians about about Israel is almost something uh, something that's uh, that's treasonous. They they're more concerned about what's good for Israel than they are concerned about what's good for the United States of America, which is their home country, which is what should be their primary concern. You know, the the other thing that I wanted to mention here is you know apart from the the cover ups and the misdeeds the cover up for the misdeeds of the government of Israel by the American press, I, I think that this whole thing really does underscore a more general corruption uh, of the the American news media. You know, this is not the only area. You know, Israel is not the only area where the the American mainstream press utterly fails the American people whom they're supposed to be serving. You can't get true information 
out of uh, out of the mainstream press. It just doesn't happen. Or if it does happen, it's uh, either something very trivial, or maybe sometimes actually they slip up and you know let the cat out of the bag. You know they they stumble and and, and fall and accidentally uh, speak the truth. You know there was a uh, someone I read one time they they defined a gaffe as when a politician accidentally tells the truth. You know and every now and then I think the American uh, mainstream press actually does slip up and tell uh, tells the truth, uh, but that's fairly rare truth is you really can't get the truth from the american media and that's true whether you're you know dealing with anything of any real importance whether it's it's covid whether it's the federal reserve or the state of the financial system whether it's uh foreign policy issues say is related to russia whether it's the 2020 presidential election whether it's immigration whether it's race issues uh all of these things um are deliberately uh misreported in the american press now you can get the truth you can get the truth. There are places you can go to get the truth on a, on a whole range of subjects, but you're not going to get them if all you do is just flip on the uh, the mainstream news. And I'm talking about even Fox News. You know, people that listen to this program maybe listen to Fox News. You know, I, I watch some Fox News, and there are some things on there that are decent, but when it you're just not going to get the truth uh, about, for instance, things like what we just talked about. They're not going to report this on Fox News that I know of anyway. You know, I don't even think Tucker Carlson has covered the Israeli angle behind uh, Ghislaine Maxwell. So, I mean, there's really been a, a conspiracy of silence on this. Now, Christians, as Christians, there's a number of times where we're warned in the scriptures not to be deceived. Un unfortunately, the American Protestant Church is terribly deceived on a whole host of issues. And this is something that we as Reformed Christians need to repent of. And we need to change. And that's really one of the, the prime uh, inspirations behind my doing this podcast or my, behind my doing the, uh, doing the blog writing that I have over the last number of years. Because I want to disabuse people of the, the false information that they get and to present a, a biblical way of looking at the world. You know, one of the things, and, and John Robbins talked about this in his writing, he talked about a principle that Martin Luther had called uh, the, the Schriftprinzip. I like to say that in German, the Schriftprinzip. It just simply means the writing principle. And it's the idea that all the writings of, of all men need to be brought back to Scripture and compared with them. You know, and if their writings, if their statements, if their systems of thought accord with Scripture, very well. And if they don't, then we're not obligated to listen to them. But, you know, unfortunately, you know, the vast majority of the, the ideas that are, are fed to American Christians about the world around them are simply false. And, and they don't hold up when you look at them through a, a scripturalist lens. And uh, anyway, that's about everything that I had this week. I wanted to leave you with that thought. So thanks so much for, uh, for listening again, uh, in again here this week. Thanks to those who stopped by on the live stream. I appreciate that. And I look forward to, uh, Lord willing, talking to you in another week about something else. I'm not sure what it's going to be at this point, but uh, um, I'm sure we'll have uh, plenty to discuss in, in the week ahead. And until then, may the spirit of truth guide you in all truth as you read and study God's Word. <laughs>